peace be with you. You want to grab a seat and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 28. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Now, before we jump in, just a bit of housekeeping. We're, going to, we're actually going to change things up a little bit this morning. Uh, it's been our tradition for the last seven or eight years to conclude the reading of God's Word before the sermon with uh, the, the saying, this is the Word of the Lord, and you all respond. Thanks be to God. That's right. Okay. And uh, that's a good tradition. We're going to change things up, uh, at least for a little while, I think, by instead concluding our Scripture reading with the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, which says, the grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Oh, you just, okay, you just did it. All right. Um, so for a little while, at least, we're going uh, to end that way. Whoever the scripture reader is on Sunday morning here, we're going to say at the end of the reading, the grass withers, the flower fades, and we'll all say together in response, the word of our God will stand forever. Okay, you got it. Well, let's take a moment to pray together and ask the Lord to help us in the hearing of His Word. Father, this, this is Your Word. And so I stand here fearful and inadequate this morning. And yet, because You are faithful, because You are firm, because You are fixed, because You are enduring forever, because You are the all-powerful King and Master of this universe, Your Word will nevertheless stand forever. And so we ask for Your help this morning that You would take Your Word and that You would pierce and penetrate our hearts with it, that You'd make it sing and sting, that You would cause it to convict us and comfort us, alter and assure us all for the sake and glory of your name. And we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. One of my favorite chapters in the Harry Potter corpus is when Harry gets his letter from Hogwarts. And part of what makes that, that chapter so moving is really uh, the, the tragedy of Harry's life prior to his acceptance letter. Uh, Harry, of course, lives with with the Dursleys, relatives of, of his who, who don't want him around. And so Harry, he grew up there in just an, an abysmal and abusive environment. He lived in a home where instead of sufficient provisions, he, was, he would just receive any leftover scraps of whatever food had already been taken. He was almost on the constant receiving end of... Um, Emotional bullying from his aunt and uncle, as well as uh, continual beatings from his cousin Dudley. He was clothed in rags and lived in a closet. And I, I remember reading this story for the first time and thinking about Harry's, Harry's life and imagining how many times as he was growing up, just thinking, how, how many times he must have laid in bed at night thinking, does my life matter at all? Do, do I matter? Then this letter comes and it changes everything. His, his uncle, uh, of course, does whatever is humanly possible to keep Harry from getting this letter because he knows something of what it will mean for their family. His uncle goes so far, actually, just to move the family out to a, a small hut on a small hunk of rock in the middle of the ocean. And yet this letter 
by way of magic, arrives all the same just in time for Harry's birthday, delivered by Hagrid in the middle of the night, along with a birthday cake. And when this letter is delivered, Harry reads to Mr. H. Potter on the floor in the hut on the rock out in the sea, Dear Mr. Potter, we are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted. And when Harry receives his letter, right, he's, it's initially more than he can take in, isn't it? He thinks the Dursleys are playing some kind of cruel joke on him. And so he starts asking Hagrid, this messenger, all sorts of questions. And come to find out, Harry, as he hears answers to those questions, it just so happens that Harry's story is completely different than anything he might have even dared to imagine for himself. Harry belongs to a magical world where everybody knows his name. He has a community of people in this world that, that know him and who care about him. His parents deeply loved him and left him an inheritance and gave their lives to save him. Harry's life then is charged with meaning and significance and purpose. Harry's life does indeed matter. And this story, this chapter, has, I think, resonated in the hearts of so many people, perhaps because all of us at one time or another know what it is to feel a void of meaning or significance in life times due to painful circumstances, the occurrences of suffering, the feelings of shame and indignity over our wrongdoing and sin or whatever else, all of us have wondered at, at one time or another, does my life even matter? Do I matter? Does, does my life hold any significance at all? Well, this morning we're considering the fact that in the beginning God created humanity in his own image. God created humanity and set us apart from all other creation as one being in his creation that stands out before and above all the rest because humanity is made in the likeness of God. This, this is our letter from Hogwarts. So let's dig in together and consider Genesis 1, 26 to 28. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and rejoicing. Just by way of reminder, at the conclusion of the scripture reading, we'll conclude by saying the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's read together now. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Oh my goodness, dude, man. Well, no one ever accused me of being brilliant. Oh my goodness. Wow, let's try it again real quick. Real quick. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for your patience. All right. Well, last Sunday, uh, we considered Genesis 1-1 through... I knew I was going to do that. Oh, my goodness. All right. 
Well, last Sunday, we considered Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 as a whole. And uh, we considered what the, the beginning of all things has to do with the end for which all things exist. In other words, we considered what creation's origins has to say about creation's purpose. And we saw that Genesis 1 shows us that God created all things. God created all things. In other words, for dominion, delight, and doxology, as we said. But we left out last week, we left out uh, uh, another item that we might have considered. One D word that we left out was for the purpose of displaying, right? Creation has a, has a displaying purpose as well. Uh, creation is meant to reveal and show us something of who God is as God. Uh, so theologians have sometimes said that God has created, uh, uh, has rather, has two great books through which he has revealed himself. Creation and the Bible. If you want to know something of who God is, if you want to know God, you can look at these two great books and something of the incomprehensible, infinite, and transcendent God will be communicated to you through them. Uh, the two are not equal, of course. Uh, the Bible is, is what we often call special revelation because it gives especially intimate knowledge of God and his gospel through extraordinary means and divine intervention in the world. Uh, but then that, in contrast, we often call creation general revelation. And we call it such because uh, creation is more general and less specific concerning what it reveals about God. And it's also given to a wider, more general audience, like to everyone who has ever existed. Right? And, and, and we know this doctrine of general revelation and creation because we find it in special revelation in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 19.1, uh, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now, in other words, in, in the heavens, through created things, we are hearing a, a sermon declaring to us something of the glory of God. The sky above, as we look up at it, is crying out to us and saying, God made me. Listen, God made me. When you see something of my beauty and splendor and glory, you are beholding something of the beauty and splendor and glory of the holy God that created me. In Romans 1, 18 to 22, the apostle Paul is making the case that all of humanity is accountable to God for their sin and rebellion against him. And he says there in verse 20 that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, he's saying, when you witness the created order, you can know that there's a God, because, I mean, first off, just nothing, you know, something doesn't come from nothing. And what's more is that also you can know something of his power and glory as God because the created order is so great and glorious itself, it, it testifies to an even greater and more glorious being that created it. And so every sinner, Paul's saying, who has ever existed, whether or not they've ever read the Bible or heard about Yahweh or heard about Christ or the resurrection, everyone is still accountable to God because they know enough about him through creation to know that they ought to worship him and revere him and honor him as God, even though none of us have. Because creation is bearing witness. It's revealing something to us of who God is. But then nowhere is that more true than in one particular being in all of God's creation. 
all created things declare to us something of the glory of God, but there's, there's one created thing in particular that was made to display God in an, in an especially remarkable way. Only one created thing was made in God's image, and it's you, and it's me. It's the almost, you know, almost eight billion people that populate this planet. It's, it's the boys and girls that run around after service that we're continually telling to stop running around here. It's the, the, the woman in her room at hospice up the street from us. It's, it's the, the Moroccans who are picking up the broken pieces of their lives right now after this earthquake. It's the Uyghur people in China who are continually being enslaved and oppressed and imprisoned right now. It's, it's the 16-year-old in high school up the street from where you live who just is so confused about gender based on what people at school and TikTok and his friends are saying about gender. It's your coworker, it's your neighbor who's getting on your last nerve right now. We and they and all people that have ever walked the face of this planet were made in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's, it's a truth of crucial and central importance for us as Christians. But sometimes we assert and confess this doctrine without really ever considering what it actually means and how it informs and infuses our lives with purpose. The scripture never really comes out and says this is what it means to be made in the image of God. And so this is just part of what we want to reflect on and consider and mull around in our minds together this morning in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We want to consider something of what it means and why it matters that we're made in the image of God. And so we're going to have three observations and then end with one application here. First, to be made in the image of God means that we were made to reflect God. We were made to reflect God. Genesis 1.26 begins, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, uh, there have been some very imaginative distinctions made Uh, between what it means to be made in God's image and what it means to be made in his likeness. But it seems better to to understand these two phrases as really being two ways of saying the same thing. Uh, To be made in God's image means to bear his likeness and vice versa. And what it means then is that we are those who reflect something of who God is in a special and unique way. Right? If at any point this morning you were to get rather tired of listening to me and decided to take a break by going downstairs to the restroom. And when you wash your hands, which you should definitely do after you use the restroom, when you wash your hands, you might look at yourself in the mirror. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, what do you see? You see your image. You'll see your reflection looking back at you. You'll see your likeness looking back at you. Now, that's your image. It's not you but it is a reflection of you. And similarly, you know, we are not God, but we are a reflection of God. We are made to be like little mirrors that reflect God back to himself and to one another in the world. Not physically, because God is spirit. He's a spiritual being. He's not a material being, but we are nonetheless to reflect God. Now, there's been no small amount of ink spilled trying to explain what that means exactly, because here's the thing. We need to understand something of of what we talked about a couple Sundays ago regarding the creator-creature distinction here in Genesis 1. A part of what Genesis 1 is setting forth for us is that God is a being in a class all his own. 
right, as God and creator, he, as the infinite and transcendent and incomprehensible one, there's no one like him. Exodus 8.10 sums up something of what we see in Genesis 1 here and says, there is no one like the Lord our God, right? Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, what do the heavenly beings sing out as they worship the triune God in the throne room? They say, holy, 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 other, There is no one like you. He's the thrice holy God and has no, he is matchless in his worth and splendor and glory. He's altogether different and set apart. He's unimaginably, incomprehensibly, infinitely glorious in ways that nothing else will ever even come close to replicating or reflecting or being like. And yet here, We see that humanity, in some sense, in some way or another, is made in the image and likeness of God. We're not God, and in some ways, we will never, it can never, and ever, we won't ever be like God, because in some ways, no one and nothing can be like God, but in some other sense, some other ways, we are. And and so that just begs the question, in what ways then, and different people throughout history have had differing explanations and emphases regarding how they answer that question, right? Many have said that uh, what it means for humanity to be made in the image of God is that we are rational beings, that we're rational, and we are rational beings most of the time, right? And some of us have, have looked at, um, some have looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and they've rightly concluded that, uh, that part of what we see revealed here is that God is an intelligent being, Uh, created things are his ideas, right? And and then by an act of volition, he then created the things conceived of in his mind. And so some will just say, you know, just so, humanity is created in the image of God to reflect his intelligence, his creativity, right? We're, We're rational beings who can think and reflect and reason in a way that really no other earthly creatures can. You know, we, we can create, we can make cars and buildings and laws and governments. We can write books and form sculptures. We can paint paintings and invent the light bulb. We are rational, intelligent beings like the God who made us. And still others look at Genesis 1, and they've said that to be made in God's image means that we're to be righteous beings then, right? We were created to be moral beings who in some way reflect the goodness and righteousness and purity of our God. Uh, People might look at humanity being made in God's image here before the fall and before slavery to sin entered and defaced this world. They look at Adam and Eve's innocence and conclude that image bearing has to do with that. Now, of course, you know, humanity is fallen and born into sin and given to incredible depravity now after Genesis 3, and yet still by God's common grace in his creatures, everyone still reflects something of what it means to be a a moral being. We're we're born equipped with a conscience, right? Even if it's misguided or seared or hardened in a plethora of ways. And this can be seen whenever, of course, you know, human beings, even if they're far from God, might write or follow just laws in a nation, or, or help a neighbor in need when they get nothing in return, or, or grieve at the triumph of evil in a national tragedy, or if they've ever felt guilty or ashamed for having done something evil themselves before. These are signs 
that humanity has been made to be righteous, that we are moral beings. Still others look at Genesis 1 and believe that to be made in God's image means to be a relational being, right? They look at the phrase, let us make man in our image. God is seen here referring to himself with the plural us and our. And in this, many have seen an indication that the one true God here actually exists in some sort of plurality of persons. And of course, we know in the New Testament, uh, fullness, uh, fullness of New Testament revelation that our God is indeed triune. He's a triune God. He's one God who exists eternally in three persons. Our God is one who has existed in this glorious relational reality for all of eternity and will forever and ever in eternity future. And to reflect him then, he made us to know and live in relationship with himself and with one another. He made us to be relational beings to reflect something of who he is here. And not just that, but still others. We'll look at Genesis 1 and the various texts that speak to the reality of this topic throughout scripture, texts like Genesis 9, 6, and James 3, 9, and others, and conclude that to be made in God's image means that we're respectable, right? By which I mean that we ought to be considered valuable and precious, that human beings, by, by nature of whose image we bear, possess a dignity that no other creature possesses. Now, if I could just use a philosophical term for a moment, it means that we possess ontological worth, so ontology is a word that speaks to the nature of being or one's essence. That is to say, we possess ontological worth as human beings. It means that we possess a value and a worth regardless of what we're able to do, what we're able to contribute, regardless of whether we're able to think rationally or what good we're able to do. We have this fixed, unchangeable value and worth because we're made in the divine image. Now, these, these views are sometimes discussed and asserted and argued over. But of course, we know that a, as long as differing claims and views don't contradict each other, they can all actually be true at the same time, right? And it seems to me that each of these realities then is true based on what we see in the scriptures and that they don't contradict each other. Rather, they're truths that can exist harmoniously alongside one another, right? So our God is an all-knowing and wise God who has made us to reflect him in our rationality. Our God is a holy, pure God who has made us to reflect him in righteousness. Our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he made us to be in relationship with himself and with one another for his glory. Our God is one of infinite worth and value who is worthy of being treasured and loved and revered as the greatest and best of all beings. And while we in no way compare to his matchless worth, he did still create us with value and dignity befitting his image. And these are special and unique ways in which we reflect the God who, 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 who made us back to himself and to one another and to the world. This is all part of what it means to be made in the image of God. These are essential ways in which you are special and you're set apart and you're sacred as a human being. But then that's part of what it means to be made in God's image. But then what are we called to do in light of this reality? What kind of responsibility do we carry in light of this reality? Right, Uncle Ben says to Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility, right? 
And, and so what kind of responsibility comes with this, this power, this, this authority, this meaning? What, what kind of responsibility, what kind of purpose do we carry with this high call? Well, to be made in God's image also means that we are made to represent God as well. We are made to represent God. And verse 26 goes on to say, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And there we, we see that, that word that we used last week to speak of God's rule and reign as king. This word dominion, right? And dominion, of course, means to rule over something, to, to be sovereign over, to be a king or queen over something, as it were. It carries with it images of, of regality and, and royalty. And the idea of being made in, in the image of a god and being royalty, would have, it would have made sense to an ancient Near Eastern audience, more so than it might to, to many of us today. Because it, it, it would have typically been said of a king or an emperor, or a monarch of some sort, that they were the image of a god, right? For instance, the pharaoh, uh, Ramses II, was hailed in ancient Egypt as the very image of God. And, and what was being communicated in that, Right? What was being communicated is, is that Pharaoh represented a god or the gods of the nation of Egypt to the people of Egypt. He was one who had been commissioned and who ruled then on behalf of the gods of Egypt. And as a result, he would have been deeply revered and respected, perhaps even worshipped by the people of Egypt because they would have considered him a very representation of a god to themselves. He ruled, it would have been said, on behalf of the gods. Here's where Genesis 1.26 is, is just so radical. It shows us it's not just kings, emperors, monarchs who bear the divine image. As, as it were, it, it democratizes. It says we all bear the divine image. Just think about how surprising, how thrilling that would have been to the Israelites. This people who had just been crushed under one said to be a divine image. This people had been oppressed and enslaved and abused by someone claiming to be the very image of the gods, to carry divine authority and to be a, 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 a representation of divine dominion. They've been squashed under this divine image bearer's fist for hundreds of years, but now they've been rescued, they've been redeemed from slavery and oppression, and the God who rescues them says to them about them, all of them, you are my image. You are royalty. I created you, all of you, to represent me as royal sons and daughters. This would be like receiving a letter from Hogwarts, right? And not just for the Israelites, but for us as well, right? This, this, this bestows such dignity upon us. Loved ones, this means that you have been distinguished and dignified with this, this high calling on your life to represent God in this world. He has created and commissioned you to rule over this world on his behalf, all of you, together. You've been given a particular sphere. You've been given a, a particular place. You've been given a home, a job, a church, a family, maybe even pets if you're that kind of person. And, and, and myriad responsibilities in the spheres over which you reign. And in these, 
You are meant to exercise dominion over what you have been given, to steward it all in a way that honors and reflects and represents the reign of God in the world. The term for, the, the, for this that people usually use is this term vice regent, right? A, a vice regent is someone who has been deputized to act in the place of a higher ruler, right? And we saw last week, God is the ultimate king, right? There, there's no one else like him. He's got no rival, no equal. The world and this, this whole cosmos is the domain of his rule. He alone is master and lord of the universe. He alone is enthroned over all heaven and earth. And yet, yet, he has deputized you and all of us to represent his rule here on this earth. We are his vice regents in that we have been created and commissioned by him to exercise dominion over this created order as his representatives. And I know some of, the, some of the fears and frustrations that many people feel today when we hear such talk. You know, I, I, I remember talking with a non-believing friend of mine a couple of years ago about what it means to, to image God and how we're to exercise dominion over the created order. And I remember when I used that word, dominion, just a look of obvious displeasure instantly came over his face. In, in his mind, as we talked, such language was, was just automatically associated with exploitation of created things, the, the careless destruction of created things, marring and harming the created order with this justification that, well, we're made to, to rule and reign over it and dominate it as vice regents with, with our you know, dominion over the earth. So maybe we should just say here, a wave reminder, what we considered last week, that in the Bible, authority, dominion, power is not automatically a bad thing, right? It, it is true that some have misused this text here in Genesis 1 in the past in an effort to, ju to justify the exploitation and destruction and careless destruction of created things, but that doesn't mean that that was God's original intention here. In fact, we know it was not. Because consider what we just saw of, of God's dominion last week. His dominion was not one that led to destruction, but to creation, right? It, it didn't lead to exploitation, but abundant life and fruitfulness. It was one that led to the, the beauty and development and abundance and order and fruitfulness of created things. And, and just so. Our dominion over created things as humanity is meant to bring about the same. Which brings us lastly to the fact that we were made to resemble God. And here we see something of how we're to represent God in the earth. We see here that we've been given a role to fill, a work to do, and something of, of how we're to do it. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we see God bless humanity, right? And the blessing actually comes in the form of a command, which should perhaps shape and inform the way we view God's commands. But, but the command here corresponds to much of what we've actually seen God doing thus far in Genesis 1, doesn't it? Remember Genesis 1, verse 2? What was the, the state of the earth after God's initial act of creation? Uh, it, it was in a state of chaos 
and emptiness and darkness. It says that the earth was without form and void. It was formless and it was empty. But then what does God do in the six creation days? Right, the, the first three days, God takes care of this problem of formlessness by subduing the chaos and bringing it into good order. In other words, he, he forms it. And then the last three creation days, days four through six, what does he do? Well, he takes care of the problem of void, of emptiness. And he does so by, by filling the earth, right? He fills the sky night and day with luminaries. He fills sky and sea and land with birds and fish and animals and humans. And, and what does God now say to humanity, right? He says, fill the earth and subdue it. He says, form it and fill it. Subdue what is undeveloped in it, giving it further order and formation and beauty, and fill it, right? Get married and start families and have children and fill the earth with more image bearers who continue to form and fill the earth. In short, he says, be like me, imitate me, do what you just saw me do, form and fill the earth, resemble me. And some have pointed out that this is all indicated by the fact that Genesis 1 refers to the creation as good continually, over and over again. And the word good being contrasted with maybe the word perfect or completed, right? It doesn't say that the created order is perfect in Genesis 1, because that would mean that there's a sense of completion about it, that it's reached its intended goal and final outcome, but it's not yet perfected. It's not yet finished. It's not yet completed. It's good. It has potential, but there's still work to be done. There's still development to be made. There's still forming and filling that needs to take place. All the raw materials are here for us, and we're called to put them to good use in forming and filling the earth. It might be similar you know, to maybe when you get one of those small little uh, airplane models from the Air Force Museum. Um, I don't know, maybe it's just us. Uh, but our, our boys are kind of plane obsessed right now. And so out of the like almost 10 times we've been to the Air Force Museum this past summer, uh, we've gotten a few model planes. We might walk through the, the little gift shop area and get a little model of like a SR-71 Blackbird or like a, a Memphis Bell or something along those lines. And when we take it home, and what do we do? We, we open the package, and all the parts and materials would be there, but the plane wasn't yet complete. It still needed to be put together. And so the boys would together, and uh, I would help. Some were needed, and they'd put the pieces together until what we're looking at is a real model of an actual plane that you've just seen at the museum. Well, similarly, friends, part of what it means to be made in God's image Part of why we reflect him, part of our job as his representatives is to take this world and develop it and form it and fill it for his glory in a way that reflects him as the benevolent king he's revealed to be here in Genesis 1. Some of us are, are called to take the formless and, and empty yards, the houses we inhabit, and make them into beautiful and orderly Gardens filled with vegetables and plants and flowers and trees. And some of us might be called to take unformed letters and sounds and words and create the, the beauty and orderliness of poetry. And some of us might be called to take, you know, the chaos of disordered sounds and notes and, and tones and shape them into song. 
We're called to get married and to have children and fill the earth with more image bearers. We're called to, to take the unformed chaos of raw materials of wood and stone and metals and form and shape them into furniture and homes and buildings. Some of us might be called to take a, a blank canvas, not un, entirely like the, unlike the blank canvas we see in Genesis 1-2 here, and paint beautiful colors and images and shapes and patterns on it. Others might be called to take the, the, the chaos of sickness and bodily brokenness with medicine and care. Now, others might be called to take the raw materials of food and create dishes that just thrill the palate with pleasure and delight. Whatever it is, we could give a hundred more examples. But each of us has been called to, in some way, in some measure, in some form, to take part in resembling our Creator God by forming and filling, subduing and spawning, making and multiplying, because this is part of our calling as the image of God. Now, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? We, we, are, we are God's reflection. We're to represent Him and resemble Him in the earth, in our callings and vocations and homes and fears of influence, right? But, but how should we live in light of what we see here in these three observations from Genesis 1, 26 to 28? Well, the Bible's main application, it seems, when it comes to the doctrine of the Imago Dei, is that humanity ought to be honored and esteemed in light of it, right? Humanity, being made in God's image, is endowed with worth and value and importance and significance because of whose image we bear. And therefore, humanity ought to be honored and esteemed and respected. We ought to hold the divine image, in other words, in high regard. We see this here, actually, in a text in Genesis, in Genesis 9-6, we alluded to earlier. There, after the, the flood, God sets up the, the Noahic covenant, and part of that covenant expresses that whoever takes the life of another human in an act of murder will himself have his life taken. And the reason is given there, for God made man in his own image. Okay, the, the reasoning there is human life is precious. It's valuable. It ought to be honored and esteemed. And so there will be a high cost to taking the life of an image bearer. A similar kind of value is bestowed upon humanity in, in James 3.9 as well. There, the, the, James, the Lord's brother, is showing the irony of, of the way in which we talk about our fellow human beings sometimes. He says that with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image or people who are made in the likeness of God. The implication being, that ought not be the case, right? If we desire to honor God, we ought to bless humanity with the words of our mouths. Why? Because humanity is made in God's likeness, and so it ought to be esteemed as such. What's more, friends, is that Psalm 8 shows us that God himself has high regard for humanity. And we read this earlier to begin with, where we saw the, the psalmist just overwhelmed, right, with wonder and awe at the fact that the universe, and a universe so vast, so great, so splendorous, God cares for and pays attention to in regards little old human creatures like us. Psalm 8, 3, and 4 says, verse 5 says that God has crowned 
we creatures, we image bearers, with honor and dignity. And so because this is the way the Bible speaks about and applies the doctrine of humanity bearing the divine image, I want, I want you to walk away this morning applying this truth by honoring and esteeming humanity as God's precious image bearers. This is important to point out, right, among Christians, perhaps in, in, in our tradition, in the Christian faith, because sometimes, sometimes it seems like our doctrine of humanity can begin with Genesis 3 and the fall and the fact that we're born sinful and totally depraved, and, 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 and that, of course, is true, but even still, that's not where the Bible starts. That's not where the Bible starts concerning what we believe about humanity. The Bible starts here by speaking about humanity with dignity and honor. It starts with the fact that we are created in God's image. And what's more, is the Bible continues to refer to us as such throughout the Bible, even after the fall. We don't lose the divine image. Of course, the, the image becomes marred. It becomes broken. After the fall, we are like broken mirrors reflecting a, a fractured image of God. And yet it still says all the same, that we are divine image bearers. And therefore, we are worthy of honor and esteem and regard because of the one that we reflect. So we say here, honor God's image. To begin with, we should say, and you have to honor yourself as God's image. Honor yourself as God's own image. And to some of you, that, that, that might seem surprising that I would say that. It might even seem perhaps inappropriate for me to say it. But I say it because in my experience as fallen image bearers, we don't often honor ourselves as we ought. Instead, we kind of oscillate between uh, deifying self or denigrating self. Right? On the one hand, we're often guilty of worshiping self, exalting self, making much of self, and oftentimes, maybe even in the same day, maybe even in the same hour, we might also transition into, into denigrating self, despising self, dishonoring self. Many of us might very well think of moments just this past week, right, where, where we worshiped self. Maybe we've engaged in attention-seeking behavior on social media. Uh, maybe we've used others at work for our own personal goals without regarding them or their feelings or well-being. Maybe we've, we've failed to really consider the feelings or perspectives of our family members and a disagreement or argument. And maybe we've, we've treated relationships with one another in the church as transactional, right? really only focusing on what we might get out of it rather than as an opportunity to support and care for one another. Whatever it is, when we engage in, in these kinds of attitudes, when we engage in these kinds of behaviors, we aren't, we aren't placing ourselves in our proper place, we're placing ourselves the center of our universe and seeking to exalt our, ourselves to the place that really only God should be. And yet we're not God. We're, we're creatures. We're an image, a reflection of him. We're glorious creatures, but we're creatures nonetheless. And yet we're not just any creatures. We are creatures made in the divine image. And so while we shouldn't seek to deify ourselves, as it were, we also shouldn't denigrate ourselves. I often see us doing this as well. I've been in pastoral ministry long enough, and I've had enough frank conversations with, with saints to, to know that some of the things we say to ourselves sometimes are just, some of the thoughts that haunt our minds are just terrible. There's a whole lot of just negative 
self-talk that goes on in some of our lives and minds. I, I know that some of you just beat yourself up and say horrendous things to yourselves, things that, that would make your blood boil with anger if someone else said them to a, a loved one of yours. Some of us say horrendous things to ourselves. I'm, say, I'm such an idiot. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a piece of garbage. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm worthless. Some of us say things like this to each other. And yet, what does God say here in Genesis 1, 26? He says, none of that's true. You are an image bearer. You, you were made, gloriously made, intentionally made, lovingly made to reflect something of the glorious and great and good, magnificent God. Your life matters. You matter. This, this passage charges your world and infuses your life with meaning and purpose and significance. You are important, and it's okay to know that and to feel that. So you ought to treat yourself as such. Don't, don't deify yourself. Don't worship yourself, but honor yourself. Honor, honoring God's image in yourself means not deifying yourself or denigrating yourself. It means walking in a kind of sanctified self-regard, knowing where your worth comes from. It comes from the God who has made you and sent his son to redeem you because he values you as his image and likeness. Then, of course, we're not the only ones made in God's image. So we also ought to honor the image of God in others as well. Honor the image of God in others. It's in every human being, every person you've, you've come across, Every person from every race and ethnicity, whether rich or poor, every age and stage of life, both male and female, every person from every nation, tribe, and tongue bears the divine image. According to John Calvin, then, that means that, that every person we come across is unquestionably, automatically deserving of our honor and love. He says in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Scripture helps us in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider what men merit of themselves, but rather, listen, to look upon the image of God in all men to which we owe all honor and love. Right? He's reasoning here. We, all, we owe all honor and love, Calvin says, to God. And therefore, when we see those who bear his image and likeness, honor is due to them. It's not earned. It's not achieved. Honor is owed as a matter of justice. As Christians, right, this is one reason why, why we're pro-life. Why we're pro-life as Christians. As I know we had a whole sermon about earlier this year. We'll just point this out briefly here again. We value human life and count human beings as sacred and precious, not just because of what kind of contributions people make as image bearers, but because as divine image bearers, people possess extrinsic worth regardless of their abilities and contributions and what good they might do. And that extends to the lives of the unborn, which is important for us to remember as issue one is going to show up on our ballots in November. Right? We, we ought to remember that the lives of image bearers are worthy of whatever protection and consideration we can afford. And that that little, that little precious boy or precious little girl that society might call a burden or a choice is actually royalty, a 
according to Genesis 1 here. We should also highlight here that the image of God in verse 27 applies to both male and female, right? Men and women, boys and girls, that we not only image God as humanity in general, but both as male and female in particular. There's something distinctive, men and boys, about our masculinity that reflects God, women and girls. There's something important and distinctive about your femininity that reflects something of who God is. And that, that's, that's important as we highlight the subject of, of maybe transgenderism and, and gender fluidity as it's so magnified today. We, we ought to highlight here that sexual differentiation is not of little importance to God. It's part of his design. We've received our sexuality. Our sexuality has been designed by God and therefore to seek to alter it or deny it or suppress it or, or to approve of those who do is to reject what God himself has designed and created us to be. It's rejecting and demeaning God and his gifts. And so even while those with gender dysphoria indeed deserve our respect, deserve dignity as divine image bearers, as well as our compassion for their unique struggles and sufferings in life, if we were to go along with the cultural tide concerning the subject right now, we would actually be encouraging our neighbors to reject God's good design, and therefore we would be dishonoring the image of God in our neighbors. Instead, honoring God's image means honoring our maleness and our femaleness. It means gladly receiving who God has created us to be and opposing any ideas or efforts that could thwart God's intended design. Which furthermore, means that the church then ought to be a place where our maleness and femaleness ought to be respected and celebrated, right? We ought to honor and respect and show proper dignity to one another's maleness and femaleness, right? So we're, we're a complementarian church, which means that we believe that men and women are ontologically equal, but not interchangeable, right? We, we have real distinct differences in gifts, and those differences in gifts are good, and they're designed to complement one another as we seek to live together as image bearers and vice regents, which means, let me just take a moment to say this, women, girls, you matter. You, you matter to this church. You, you, you bring something important to the table at this church. We, we believe that your femininity is good. It's God's good design, right? He created you in a distinct and glorious and important way so that you bring needed gifts and perspectives and proclivities to our church. And, and, and what's more, it's, you don't just matter because of what you bring to the table. You matter just because of who you are as a person, as an image bearer. You possess ontological worth just because of who you are as a person. Same for men and boys. You, you matter, right? You, you matter. You, you also bring something important to the table distinctly as men and boys. Your, your, your masculinity is good. It, 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 your masculinity is God's idea. It's not a liability. 
despite what some might tell you today, it's not something that needs to be suppressed or denied. God formed you and created you as male, as a man, as a boy. And what God makes is good. And so this, this increasing sense of competition or vying for dominance or power between the sexes in our cultural moment, in our world right now, ought to have no place among the church of Christ, in the church, in the kingdom of God, in the household of God. This, this increasing sense of competition we see in the world ought to see its photo negative. Instead, the world ought to see here complementarity and collaboration, celebration of one another's gifts, working together in harmony for the purposes of God. It ought to see honor and celebration of one another's design and abilities and perspectives. It ought to see men and women listening to each other and working alongside one another as the family of God for the purpose of God. The only competition that has any place among us is the, the competition described in Romans 12, 10, right? To outdo one another in showing honor, which is a competition, Ray Ortland says, is one where everyone wins. We all win when that's our competition. We have to honor and esteem one another as those created in God's image, as male and female, as men and women, as boys and girls. We have to honor the image of God. And there's so much more that could be said here. But ultimately, we will only honor the image of God rightly when we behold not just the fact that God created us in his image, but when we behold that God himself, what God himself has done to redeem us and restore us as his image. He did create us in the, in the beginning here in Genesis in his image, but he came himself to redeem us as his image in the gospel. For the eternal son of God himself came to us and he put on our humanity and as the Son of God, clothed in human vesture. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the exact, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image, he's the, the perfect image of the invisible God. In fact, Jesus so clearly and completely shows us who God is that he could say in John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so even while we ourselves are broken image bearers, fractured mirrors, poorly and imperfectly reflecting the image of our creator, what we behold in Jesus of Nazareth is a perfect reflection of who our God is. And nowhere does he more clearly and completely show forth who our God is than in his cross, where he, as the perfect image of God, gave himself to be broken so that we broken image bearers could be forgiven and restored. When, when beholding the cross, we, we can say with confidence while we often sing together, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. In the cross, we see a God so great and so marvelous with a love so deep and so unfathomable, pay such a dear cost to redeem us. And the cross, more than we see it anywhere else, we see how God has crowned us with dignity and honor and counted us as precious to himself. In the cross, we behold our unworthiness, yes. But even more, we behold the worth bestowed upon us by our creator, whose image we bear. Does your life matter? Do you matter? 
Yes, your value is fixed. Your ransom has been paid at the cross. This is our letter from Hogwarts. Our lives are charged with significance and infused with meaning because we have been created and more, we have been redeemed to be God's precious and valued image bearers. And so honor the image, esteem it in one another, exalt it in the Christ, thereby be who you were made to be.